Welcome to another light reading podcast. This is the notebook edition. Congratulations. You've made it all the way to the month of December. Holy cow. Just exceeding our expectations. Way to go. Um, anyway, this is our, our podcast where we talk uh, about stories from the past week. Actually, in this case, it'll be the past two weeks because we took the Thanksgiving holiday off. I can't believe that's already passed. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's go ar- around the horn and tell you who's on the podcast. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor at Light Reading. Uh, let's go by alpha, <laughs> uh, al- alphabetically. <laughs> oh, okay. Last name or first name? Uh, oh, last name. <laughs> okay. Oh, I guess that'd be me. Uh, hey, Jeff Baumgartner, senior editor at Light Reading. I had to look at the letters. Yeah, yeah. this is. I know this is too much. This is too much math in the morning. I think I. I think I'm next. Mike Dano, editor at Light Reading. Uh, Nicole Ferraro. Yeah, Ferraro. Uh, also an editor. And Kelsey Zeiser, I'm always last and yeah, also an editor. Yeah, last. Ah, uh, yes. But this time we're going to go first with Kelsey. Uh, okay. Kelsey, what, the, what, what <laughs> fell out of your notebook this week? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, For the last two weeks. Yeah. Because last week's uh, uh, eligible as well. Okay. Um, I finished posting um, the last uh, podcast that I did from the um, SES and Boeing tour um, that I went to in El Segundo, California, which is right around the corner from the uh, Los Angeles airport and um, spoke with Ryan Reed. He's the president with um, Boeing satellite division. And he talked a little bit about um, their partnership with SES and launching their O3B Empower satellites, um, and those are MEO satellites, so medium Earth orbit, and those are going to be launched in mid-December, the week of the 12th. So mark your calendars. And are those for broadband purposes, or what? What's the what's the end use for those? To deliver fiber-like connectivity. <laughs> oh, fiber-like yeah. from a from a. a medium earth orbit satellite yeah, so they have five thousand hmm. beams um to cover more uh surface area and i think there's gonna be maybe about half a dozen total um so they're gonna launch a couple more i believe it's two in december and then a few more in q1 of next year and um so SES is the satellite operator and some of their customers are like cruise ships um, so they mm. describe it as almost like a floating town and being able to, you know, follow the cruise ship and, and deliver, um, you know, make sure they have consistent connectivity. And we also spoke a little bit about um, underserved areas. So that's an opportunity, too, for places like Africa that maybe doesn't have um, the same fiber infrastructure as other areas so they can access that um, satellite network. So with new satellite tech, they're going to be a bit more of a competitor, uh, be in a better competitive uh, position to take on like Starlink and companies like that that are that are that are doing low Earth orbit. Yeah, and and that was kind of interesting to talk to them about. Um, you know, why launch uh, Mio versus the Leo, the the lower Earth orbit satellites? And um, I mean, it's been a while since I took physics. <laughs> in high school but i mean it seems like with uh you know higher up you can cover more surface area of the earth um so utilize less satellites to cover more area 
And that was your science okay. moment for today. Thank you. Yeah, very that good. That will be a test. We started talking about satellites, so suddenly Mike woke up. So I was, yeah. <laughs> is there going to be a test about this afterward? Because I, I I might need a, re- a refresher after all this. Yes, science. you're going to yeah. have to calculate the trajectory <laughs> of the satellite. I was the signal degrega- degradation from <laughs> medium to low Earth orbit, and how how that how that translates to service interruption. Got it. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll be back in three weeks. Yeah. So I'll have yeah. a- <laughs> gravity, isn't it like negative 9.8 meters per second or something? That's all I remember. Sure. <laughs> yeah. What you said. I mean, only we had devices connected to the internet at all times to help us look things up. I, uh... Mike's furiously Googling. <laughs> Google. I don't even. I can't uh, nothing. Well, well, uh, well. Let's let's bail Mike out. Mike, what uh, what, what did you cover the last couple of weeks, or what stories stood out to you, even if you didn't cover them, that yeah. were uh, of interest? Well, speaking of math, I I, uh, <laughs> I actually did ten points is, for that episode transition. is getting worse and worse. Yeah, yeah I, I was it. hoping he would say football, but never mind. Go ahead, I, math. No, sure. Actually, yeah. I mean, there is a, a small amount of math that I did have to do. So um, I did a story on six G, and okay. So so follow me on this one because here's here's the stories. So the the upshot here is that Dish Wireless is going to rule six G. And and here's the here's the argument for this, right? Is that okay? So there's there's a thing called six G. It comes after five G, and they're supposed to do it in you know the year twenty thirty or whatever. And the new thing is that people are starting to talk about what spectrum band is six G going to work in. And when they first started talking about six G a couple of years ago, they were like, oh. It's going to work in the terahertz bands. It's going to work in the millimeter wave bands. It's going to work in these like super high bands. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the recent discussion around 6G is actually much lower. It's it's actually in the in the spectrum bands that are like seven gigahertz to like 20 gigahertz, which is lower than terahertz, lower than millimeter wave. Right. And so the reason that DISH is involved is, well, Dish actually owns a, a large chunk of spectrum right at 12 gigahertz, like right in the middle of what they're saying is the, the, the good bands for 6G. And Dish has a proceeding at the FCC that's like, hey, you should let us put put wireless communications in this band. They're not allowed to yet. That band is like reserved for satellite stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the F or the, but dish network is asking the FCC to change the rules for that band. And then if they do, then, you know, dish would have this huge amount of spectrum and Hey, they're talking about six G for this, for this band. And so if, if a equals B and B equals C, then dish <laughs> network is going to, yeah. going to crush it in six G. That's, uh, see that? Yeah. That's well, yeah. even right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> letters, numbers, you got the whole thing. Well, Mike, yeah. I'm on, got all this. I have a question about 6G, right? Because, you know, there there were all the use cases that were talked about 5G, right? And uh, they haven't necessarily paid off all that well <laughs> for, for some of these guys. What? I know, I'm it's shocked. crazy. So <laughs> what, what, what is it about 6G that, uh, what's kind of the use case or, uh, you know, the reason you know, for, for another set of standards, right? Because uh, remote surgery and autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. 
which are, which are the exact same use cases like, they talked about familiar. in Fire. Yeah, all right. yeah, no, that's yeah. There, there is no, there's nothing about six G that's different. Uh, it's all the same. Other it's than all the same stuff. The spectrum bands potentially. Yeah. Spectrum bands might be different. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's exactly. just more of everything we do now, and then they keep hoping that someone will invent an op, uh, an application that's been as valuable as like Uber and Lyft and that sort of thing. You know. Mm. That, that that could only have existed on that thing, but they, yeah, they retroactively fit the use case to justify the investment. But but fast forward to you have to you have to be ten years out into the investment before you realize there's a use case. So mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah. it's a it depends on what side you want to argue, I guess. Yeah, build it and they will come. I mean, the interesting thing is that you know fixed wireless has really become the, the, the use case for 5g. And so that's sort of a, you know, an interesting thing that really, there was some suspicion that that was going to happen, but it's, it's been sort of a surprise, I think, to everybody, the amount of momentum around fixed wireless in 5g. So maybe 6g will have something else that comes along. No, no one really knows. My bet on uh, augmented reality glasses. That's my bet. Do you feel like the um, fixed wireless use case was sort of made by the pandemic, though? Like, doesn't 6G kind of need a pandemic moment in order to <laughs> accelerate well, its don't potential it, use case? Yeah. I mean, the future is doomed regardless, so let's just talk about it. Oh, yeah. Let's get that T-shirt going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, her, Sorry. you heard it here first, everybody. You should stop inviting <laughs> me to these. Nicole has um, that crocheted on a pillow in her heavily fortified <laughs> office. On the, on the other, the, the future reverse, doesn't exist. On the reverse of the pillow, it just says, don't bother. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Comfort schmumfort. <laughs> anyway, really what was the question? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Right. Right. I'm looking forward to my next pandemic. <laughs> I know what that is. But for but it is interesting that the fixed the fixed uh, wireless use case really did come into its own through yeah. the pandemic. I'm not sure that 5G would have you know brought so much fixed wireless to us without without the need for so much fixed broadband yeah. over the last. That's true. Years. Like it, it was a they, they were the timing of those two things was was pretty pretty noteworthy. You know yeah. this kind of highlights the conspiracy theory that 5g is in the facts it's all ties together yes. it all ties together <laughs> Meet one of those boards behind you with all the strings <laughs> connecting different exactly yeah there's charlie like, well, day uh-huh. from, this is exactly uh, why sunny. people come to podcast no one else would want to hear um <laughs> nicole's the, just got band-aids up and down her arms yeah no all Give me any vaccine if they're in test. If your preschoolers making it, I don't care. Give it to me. I want it. just stick me. That's yeah. another me weird uh, offer slash dare from from uh, Nicole. I, I have a six G follow up there. Uh, not a question, but actually Thank something God. else you should read on our site. Um, Ian's piece this week uh, talked about how, or no, it was last week, how six uh, G could be disrupted to traditional telecom vendors. He cited Ericsson because he had been in an Ericsson event and heard some there. Folks speaking, but um, the reasoning behind it wasn't wasn't far out. Um, you know, more cloud-based functions. That's not what they you know grew up doing. Less of a need for specialized silicon, so there's not as much of a hardware advantage. Uh, bigger embrace of uh, open RAN-like tactics. So meaning, whatever comes next, we're probably going to end up with more software competition in 
the network in, to some degree. Um, 6G being truly different from 5G in terms of um, it's not based on 4G tech, we don't think. Uh, it'll likely be, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe may a little bit different. And then there's the economies of scale advantage, um, which kind of goes away for the big networking equipment providers because, or at least on the telecom side, because mobile standards were once global, they seem to be being dragged into kind of the more geopolitical turf war. So they might get more and more fractured, which means if you own, you know, a particular technology in a particular space, it's going to be a much smaller addressable market. So that could favor cloud providers, IT networking companies, and those that sort of build out that way. So, I mean, if you put all that together, in addition to Nicole's vaccine radio theory, um, no, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, it, it does actually, you know, uh, raise a bunch of questions about 6G and how it will affect the industry, because it could, it could actually disrupt some of the major suppliers, uh, you know, inadvertently almost, even though they would you would think they would stand to profit the most, but uh, but the way things are going, at least at this point, maybe not. Um, speaking of uh, Nicole, let's pivot to you so we can uh, keep keep things rocking right along. What uh, what was in your notebook this week or last? Um, sure. So uh, you mentioned something called Thanksgiving. Uh, the holiday that I was tracking in November was um, <laughs> not Thanksgiving. It was the release of the national broadband map by the FCC on November 18th, which was a week before Thanksgiving. But we haven't talked about it yet on this right. hit podcast show. I figured I'd talk about it a little bit because I did have an update story on it this week. So just to recap, uh, the FCC released the national broadband map. Uh, a couple weeks ago. So that means now everybody has access not to the underlying data, but to the map itself. You can go in, you can type in your home address, your business address, and uh, you should do that because doing so is how we can all, uh, in theory, improve the map um, because there is a challenge process that's baked in that now we regular people can participate in. Previously, it was just the ISPs and the local governments and municipalities that were able to submit challenge data. Um, so I say, in theory, we can improve the map because when you do submit a challenge, it then goes to the ISP who submitted the underlying data to review your challenge, potentially connect with you to try to resolve it. If there's no resolution, the FCC will ultimately decide how a challenge get resolved. So it definitely remains to be seen how much uh, challenges change the map as it stands right now. Um, but the FCC is requesting that everybody gets challenges in that includes regular people like you and me and governments and ISPs that can continue to challenge the data um, by January 13th, because uh, then the map is going to be revised so that NTIA can make its bead allocations by summer 2023. Are you with me so far? Have you gone in? <laughs> yes. Have you gone in yourself and plugged oh. in and did it match? Did it look yeah. right? I'm glad you asked because uh, the first thing I did was plug in my own home address and I got to submit a challenge, a location challenge, mm. because my apartment building was not listed as a broadband serviceable location. I assume it's because they're mad at me because I, I, I said some things about the process in my article. No more broadband <laughs> for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Your building um, does not exist. But, uh, mm. Exactly. Yeah, it was funny. They had my whole block, yeah. but not my Nicole building. was like, I know. Um, <laughs> you don't exist. I, actually, I've known I, I've never existed. I'm 
I am a ghost, as I have always suspected. Um, but to that point, you can submit two types of challenges for fixed broadband, a location challenge and an availability challenge. A location cha- You file a location challenge like I did if the map is missing a broadband serviceable location. Um, you file an availability challenge if you look up your address and the provider's service claims are wrong according to what you know. Um, so, And if you want to challenge mobile data, which is also on the map, you can do that through the FCC speed test app. Regarding speeds, for fixed broadband, the map is showing um, uh, highest available advertised speeds, and you cannot challenge speed data for fixed broadband, um, period, end of story. Uh, so um, bringing it back around to the story I had this week, uh, there was a, a broadband group called the Schools Health and Libraries Coalition, Broadband Coalition, that met with the FCC recently and filed a letter ex part to raise an issue with the map that uh, the map does not show community anchor institutions as broadband serviceable locations. That's not a mistake that is baked into the FCC's cost modeling for broadband data. Um, The FCC only uh, collects data on mass market broadband, so it does not collect data on uh, locations that would potentially subscribe to non-mass market broadband. They consider those large enterprises as part of the cost model, but the large enterprises also include small businesses and uh, community anchor institutions. So there's potentially, you know, hundreds of thousands maybe millions of locations that are not on the map as broadband serviceable. This was raised as an issue by uh, Jonathan Chambers, who works with Connexon prior to the map's release, because as an ISP, he was working with the data already, so he could see this. Um, and he pointed out that there's you know, tons of small rural businesses that aren't listed on the map as broadband serviceable, and that could really impact their bead allocations. Um, And so this week, the uh, SHLB coalition filed an ex part, basically pointing to this issue as far as it goes for community anchor institutions and not asking the FCC to revise its cost model, which I think is a far more complicated issue to address, but asking the FCC to um, mark all community anchor institutions as broadband serviceable by default on the next version of the map. I asked FCC if they're going to do that or if that's even feasible with this cost model in place. They obviously didn't answer me, Um, but I have noticed that you can now mark a, you can file a location challenge now and mark a location as a community anchor institution. Now, is that a feasible way to deal with, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, community anchor institutions across the country versus having the data already that shows that they're broadband serviceable and then going in and saying, no, this, this takes an enterprise level service. I, I, that's not for me to decide, but that is the big challenge um, as far as that aspect of the challenge process goes. So oh, wow. Yeah, they've got a lot, a, a lot to sort of uh, uh, to address there. But but it's interesting because, I mean, you know, it's $42 billion at stake, right? So I guess it, it's, you know, we have to go through some amount of trouble to, <laughs> to, yeah. to allocate that correctly. It's interesting that they would that they wouldn't include the anchor institutions because can't those basic, you know, a lot of those are fiber fed and could potentially be ripe for public private partnership type uh, broadband deployments. You know, if you're already taking fiber to a library that only that, that basically keeps 
you know, like the regional libraries here in Texas, they keep bankers hours basically. So, um, and they're all located right smack in the middle of communities. Um, yeah, anyway. and the um, the coalition I mentioned did point out to the FCC that the uh, the broadband legislation mentions that it wants to prioritize getting gigabit service to anchor institutions. So, in theory, you would need to know what anchor institutions are already getting in order to make sure that they're getting that service. So, it's going to be a complicated issue going forward. Um, I like that you submitted a challenge, though. I would actually uh, say, everybody, please do look at look at your own service and how it's described and listed in the broadband map. It would be uh, it, it really does help to see how the government sees what your competitive scenario is, because the provider that you're using might be making claims that, you know, especially if you're having trouble with your connectivity and it's not as great as as it says. Wait till you see what they put on the, <laughs> what they tell the FCC. It might be, it might be completely different. So it's yeah. definitely worth checking. Yep. Exactly. You know, I, I, sorry, I thought, I thought it was interesting about checking speeds because um, if you remember like circa 2020 and 2019, uh, Verizon was talking about how 5G was going to be so fast. And then Apple came out with its first 5G iPhone. It was like, oh, it's a gigabit service. You know, it's super fast. It's 5G. It's amazing. And on the on the new FCC maps, the speeds for 5G that they offer, the only two speed tiers that are included on those maps is seven megabits a second or like 35 megabits a second. That's all. That's as fast yeah. as the FCC <laughs> maps go for 5G. So, oh. yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely over promising and under delivering is Absolutely. the name of the game here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, let's uh, let's wrap up with you so we can keep it moving along. I don't want to. Uh, uh, oh. we're, we're on a bit of a time crunch today. All right. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. This week it was kind of a weird one. It was like uh, kind of a back to the future moment for the uh, the cable industry. Uh, kind of story kind of emerged that uh, there's like 20 million set top boxes out there that use this conditional access system that Scientific Atlanta developed like 30 years ago, uh, where the internal clock in it is going to roll over next uh, 2024, like around November. So what's the problem? The problem is all those boxes, if they don't do something about it, will just not decrypt video anymore. <laughs> so um, not something oh. that uh, really they advertised much. Um <laughs> Back when uh, Scientific Atlanta was doing this in the early days of digital uh, cable. So, um, so anyway, the, another company has it now, most of it, uh, Vantiva, <clears throat> they're called, and uh, the old Technicolor spin out. So they put out a warning in July that, hey, operators that have these boxes, you know, you need to remedy this by... Uh, you know, the, the mid 2024 to November, 2024 deadline or timeline, or all these boxes are just going to be inoperable. So, so they've come up with a, um, uh, they're working on a, uh, a remedy for the, the, the power key boxes that have the old cable card modules in it. They're, they're not going to worry about the embedded security devices, but another company, Adara is uh, proposing an idea where you can, uh, fix all of those boxes with kind of a technique where they'll spoof the clock <laughs> internally on the set-top box. So, um, uh, so anyway, it, 
that's there's all these approaches and I talked to Comcast and they're like, well, we're just going to swap them out. We're just going to swap the devices out. Anyway, some other operators might do it, but you know, that's expensive. It could be disruptive. Uh, you know, so it'll be something to kind of watch, uh, keep an eye on for the next couple of years. And, and it kind of made me wonder if the other side of the duopoly, the uh, Motorola general instrument side, you know, they, they developed their conditional access system around the same time. I'm just wondering if they have a, a similar rollover problem. So I'm going to, I've been poking around on that. I haven't found anything, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to, to find out. So that was, but the headline here is that tens of millions of people have pay TV service that might just stop in the middle, you know, stop and go completely blank in the next two years if they don't get some technology change fixed. And it's yeah. not a change that they themselves can handle unless they cut the cord. They can talk to their yeah. cable operator they, and they have to kind of they proactively upgrade do something. you or do something. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if uh, nothing changes, that's exactly what will happen. Like the, the boxes won't work, but you know, the, the operators are or should be by now aware of this problem. So there is a couple of years to kind of deal with it. It's just how, how are they going to deal with it? Are they just going to swap out boxes or are they going to do these other techniques to try to salvage these devices, give them some legs? But, um, you know, it's just like another milestone along the path to the like death of the, you know, old traditional set-top box. And it's almost like this clock thing almost does some of these operators a favor in a way if, you, if you're thinking about eventually migrating off of this stuff. It's like, well, you know, this clock thing, we got to do it, you know, versus just letting you know, things kind of naturally, you know, take their natural uh, course here. Yeah, by na and by natural, you mean get get uh, uh, less and less useful to the people that they're serving while charging them the same amount of money. That's usually the no. That's what you're saying, Phil. Yeah, mo. Yeah, <laughs> but that, those are the opinions of yeah. one Phil Harvey who, who doesn't admittedly doesn't read a lot. So let's uh, let, let's just get that on the record. Yeah, you should uh, check but, out our website. Yeah. Yeah, I should. Yeah. Is it, wait, hold on. Lightreading.com. Is that where I can read about clock spoofing? Exactly. Is that, is that, uh, That's your source for all clock spoofing. <laughs> all right. You don't miss a thing okay. on clock think, spoofing. I'm not searching clock spoofing on uh, on Google by any by no means at all. No. I just, uh, you know, I, I'm already, you know, I have enough problems. I don't need that out there. Um, okay. Um, Let's see. I think I think that's a pretty uh, a, a pretty eclectic bunch of uh, uh, news stories that have pulled together the week. Does anybody have anything uh, uh, randomly interesting we could wrap up with? We're 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 already past time, but uh, but but uh, any anything off topic or silly that you want to uh, lead with? So there is a movie that's coming out next year called Cocaine Bear. Oh, I saw the trailer yesterday. <laughs> and there is a trailer for this movie where a bear eats cocaine and then kills people. And it is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And here's the part that I wanted to mention. I just found out apparently it's based on a true story yeah. where an actual bear ate a bunch of cocaine. Yeah, like 30 kilos or Alabama. Yeah. Wow. I, I think now, it said it like dropped out of an airplane from a drug yeah. dealer, but the poor bear OD'd. So I think the movie uh, is, uh, you know. Wait, the bear's dead? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying like, bear was going to join us next week. Uh, I know. 
She's already got the guest booking forms and the <laughs> consent decree and all that stuff. All, all like she was getting ready to fax it off no, to whoever no. his agent was. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we should have we should have him on the next podcast as uh, interview with Bill <laughs> Hare. Be a really fast I th- yeah, podcast. I thought that was going to be what, what, the way he said it. Yeah. I thought he was going to say there's a movie called Cocaine Bear and the bear is my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back to illicit drugs on this podcast. Well, yeah. I, now is this do you think this movie will will generate public interest more in bears or more in cocaine? I, I guess is the I think coked up bears specifically. Maybe yeah. this is maybe this is a question that that business journalists shouldn't even be dealing with at all. I mean, I'm hoping it's a cautionary tale of if you find I, cocaine I, in the woods, like oh, just, like, is that what you're? Okay, that's what you're getting from. I think it's okay. kind I think of my entire career has been a cautionary tale. Not what I gleaned no. from this at all. Well. Yeah. All right. I, I think this is a great place to leave it. I, I just want to leave it right here with cocaine bear on the brain. Uh, don't Google clock spoofing. Remember to watch cocaine bear. Uh, satellites are your friends. It doesn't matter how high up they are. Check your broadband map, and 6G is probably going to kill us all. Uh, oh, no, I didn't say that. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Thanks for listening, and have a fantastic weekend.